Um, she's a really good doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Lex, but I'm also mom to Isabella, Lance, and Lucia. Our mom takes care of our family, our friends, and her patients. On this podcast, our mom is going to be talking to her doctor friends and teaching you how to keep your family safe and healthy. Okay, mom. Ready for the show? Let's do it. Welcome to Family Health with Dr. Lex. Chances are, if you're listening to this episode, you have either had pain, have wondered if maybe you have fibromyalgia, or you've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Not many people know exactly what it is or where it comes from. And in fact, a lot of doctors have even doubted whether or not fibromyalgia is a real disease. Well, indeed it is. And luckily, my friend, board-certified rheumatologist Dr. Martina Ziegenbein is here today, and we are demystifying the diagnosis. Dr. Ziegenbein is board certified and fellowship trained in rheumatology from Boston Medical Center and also completed a lupus fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital. She is currently a practicing rheumatologist in Cape Cod. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend Dr. Martina Ziegenbein to the show. Oh my gosh, I am really excited to talk to Dr. Martina Ziegenbein, who is coming to us from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and she's a board certified rheumatologist and internal medicine specialist. Today, we are talking about the mysterious, all elusive <laughs> diagnosis of fibromyalgia. She's going to break it down for us. She's going to explain it. And she's going to kind of help us understand kind of what are our treatment options and how to get a diagnosis and get our lives back if we are living with fibromyalgia. Dr. Ziegenbein, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your knowledge and expertise. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Alexis. I have to say your enthusiasm is so infectious. I've been, you know, smiling while you were presenting me. So thank you for the kind introduction. and Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. My pleasure. You are kind of a diamond in the rough as, you know, fibromyalgia is historically known as I learned it as a wastebasket diagnosis a dozen years ago when I was in medical school. And when we say that in medicine, that means that when you don't know what the hell it is, you call it fibromyalgia, a wastebasket diagnosis. We'll just say it's fibromyalgia. But fibromyalgia actually has real clinical criteria. It is diagnosable based on clinical factors and I would love for you to let our listeners know what is the definition of fibromyalgia and how do we how do we diagnose it? What are those those diagnostic criteria that we use to say that someone actually is suffering with fibromyalgia? Thank you so much again for the question. And I just have to say I, I'm smiling because that's that is how it has been known as a wastebasket diagnosis. And it has gotten a lot of bad rap because of that and because of how it was presented to the patients with the diagnosis. Patients often felt like, okay, so I have pain, but I'm being told it's all in my head. The pain is not real and this is horrible. So um, fibromyalgia is a real diag- Well, it's a syndrome. It's a, it represents real pain. First of all, I have to stress that I will be stressing that several times over the course of our interview. Um, the definition of fibromyalgia means pain all over, above and below waist on both sides of the body um, that comes and goes, can fluctuate or can be constant, that uh, occurs for more than six weeks and occurs without any concomitant inflammatory or traumatic process. So when you examine the person, there is no redness, swelling, warmth, there is no inflammatory process happening. And there is usually no damage. If there was a prior trauma, it's already healed. Now, this is the pure fibromyalgia. 
or condition where there is nothing else going on. And I have to say, and there will be many disclaimers or like confounders in rheumatology. We have a lot of patients who have primary diagnosis, osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis or other inflammatory condition, and they have a superimposed fibromyalgia. And it's really important to, so it's basically occurring, co-occurring two conditions together. And it's important to figure out what is what because um, fibromyalgia can be confounding, like patients who are in remission clinically from RA, but they have, they report a lot of pain. And if you don't know the difference, you may think that they have ongoing RA and they don't, they have, they have fibromyalgia. So, so this rheumatology as a specialty, you are, you are an expert in autoimmune and inflammatory conditions. Some of those include rheumatoid arthritis, like you mentioned, osteoarthritis, lupus, um, uh, some other, uh, you know, kind of autoimmune conditions that fall into, into the diagnosis of autoimmune, but may not necessarily be rheumatologic, you know, like celiac disease, hypothyroidism, even some diabetes. What is the, what is the, the ideology of fibromyalgia? Where does it come from? Is it autoimmune? Is it inflammatory? Where does it come from? Thank you so much for the question, for the clarifying question. It's really important to talk about that because as of right now, and we are talking in September, 2022, there is no evidence to suggest that there is any autoimmune or inflammatory uh, underpinning concept to fibromyalgia. The leading theory right now of what's causing fibromyalgia, basically the diffuse pain all over, is um, over excitement of neurocircuitry, of the neural uh, neuro, uh, pathways, neural pathways that some of them are, so we have multiple mechanisms in the brain, multiple pain centers, and some neural neurocircuitry is supposed to diminish pain. And some of it uh, is normally like naturally supposed to increase pain. So those pathways are, are on the hyper vigilant state and the inhibitory pathways are decreased. Yeah. And the current umbrella theory right now is that it's um, chronic, mild, or even minimal overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system response or stress response. And the reason that is believed that this is the case is because activation of parasympathetic nervous system or the counteract part to sympathetic nervous system when you are able to activate that that pain improves and that includes also when you are using centrally acting medications and we can talk about that a little bit later but basically um, anything that the brain perceives as a threat turns up the button on the pain processing and our body becomes our nervous system and body become oversensitive or hypersensitive to pain so there are two characteristics, two characteristic features. Number one is that when you apply pressure to not just the pressure points, which is no longer part of the diagnosis, but any, any body, body area, if you apply pressure, even though it's not very pain, like you would not expect, like if you push on your arm, you would not expect it to uh, be painful. When you push on the arm of someone with fibromyalgia, they experience, they tell you I'm having pain. So exaggerated pain response. So that's called hypersensitivity. But then there is also allodynia when you just touch somebody or like a uh, wind blows 
on you know and they touches their skin and they're ex- they they experience uh out of proportion severe pain and these are the kind of the two main features of uh when when you're talking to somebody with fibromyalgia uh what they're experiencing as i learned it there were also criteria regarding sleep and mood are those are those still factors yes diagnosis yes thank you for clarifying so i um there is a term and i don't dr wolf i think one of the researchers coined the term uh, and it, it it is being used in research studies and when uh, researchers talk about this condition it's called fibromyalgia ness basically how much of fibromyalgia like symptoms they have and when there is actually a form uh, that does ask questions about how do you sleep? Do you have disrupted sleep? How how are you able to focus? Uh, how, how is your mood? And basically, people with fibromyalgia often have additional symptoms, including difficulty sleeping, so either falling asleep or maintaining sleep. Then they have excessive fatigue, uh, usually. Not all patients, but I would say 92%, you know, majority. And they also struggle with mood and ability to focus and function. And that is sometimes referred to as brain fog. So these are all part of um, fibromyalgia syndrome, I would say. It's not, a, it's not a disease because it doesn't have a defined blood test or exam. It's a syndrome. It's a conglomeration of multiple symptoms that fall together. And I do, I do want to mention something that is really important. And I stress that to my patients. It only happened within the last decade. Uh, that, well, the research has started already more than two decades ago, a research with functional MRIs, when they, when they would apply pressure or other painful stimuli to people's arms and they, or other parts of the body, and they did MRIs, functional MRIs of their brain. And the activation in the areas of the brain corresponding to the body areas that were stimulated was elevated, was increased. So that's how we prove that the pain is real. And the reason this is extremely important to know that concept or to to know about this research is, is because that's how the diagnosis of fibromyalgia was basically validated and the International Consortium for Pain recognized fibromyalgia as a separate category, fibromyalgia type pain, which has not just fibromyalgia, but additional syndromes in it as a separate category of pain. Um, umbrellingly or summarizingly referred to as neuroplastic pain, meaning the pain is real, but it's stemming from the nervous system. And when I explain that concept to uh, my patients, they're like, as if a bulb went off, like, oh, okay, I get it. Like, this makes sense. The central nervous system is causing pain. Yeah. And just for completion for your listeners, the other two, so there are three main categories of pain. Number one is the one that comes from the periphery called nociceptive, when you have either inflamed or painful tissue. The other is uh, neuropathic, when you have either severed nerve or irritated or damaged nerve. And then the third is neuroplastic or nociplastic, when the pain is coming from the nervous system, either spinal cord, brainstem, or the brain. And very often, people don't just have one. They have usually, especially in chronic pain patients, they have combination of these, especially neuropathic and the neuroplastic, the fibromyalgia type of pain. Yeah. So what you're describing when you say, when you're saying neuroplastic, um, central pain, uh, 
is you're you're basically because pain is so subjective. I can walk around and say, oh my gosh, I have pain. The wind just blew, and you have no idea what I'm feeling, how to measure that, what to call it. But when you take the brain MRI of a person who's experiencing pain and you see changes in that MRI, it validates that that pain is the patient is actually feeling that pain. But when you're saying that it's central, you know, if I punch you in the arm, <clears throat> no susceptive pain means you're feeling that pain at your arm because I punched you. The right. central um, ne neuroplastic pain is is being felt in the brain, not necessarily in the arm. Well, I would say it's felt in the body, but it originates in the brain. And I I appreciate what you what you are describing because it's a segue to what I was going to say. There is it doesn't mean that there is no like input from the periphery, like. But the difference between somebody without fibromyalgia and with, so if you, so I have fibromyalgia, mild case, it's mostly my back. If you punched me, I will be like, oh my God, don't do that. It hurts. As opposed to if you punch somebody who has no fibromyalgia, meaning that doesn't have that hypersensitivity button turned on, they may just like, well, stop punching me, right? Like there, we are people with fibromyalgia, we are more sensitive to any painful stimuli right. or any any triggers basically and that's kind of um you um when you see enough people i mean i'm sure you see it in your practice too like it kind of people start there are certain features they say to you during the appointment that kind of leads you to think they might have central sensitization that's another name by the way it goes by many names yeah uh, central pain syndrome or central sensitization neuroplastic pain syndrome um it was previously called psychosomatic syndrome and or psychosomatic symptomatology and it was it it had stigma attached to it it had like a bad rap basically meaning as if there was the person was weak or somehow deficient if they develop somatic symptoms pain as a result of any type of stress or you know um, psychological issues and uh, i think that's the first thing that we kind of have to acknowledge that it's not sign of a weakness it yeah. had the Pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon, as you probably, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of that and it's being discussed a lot now, but it's not just the, it's not just the, um, it's not just what is happening in our body, whether there is injury or whatever, but it's the bio, uh, that's the bio part of the phenomenon, but social and psycho is whatever is happening in our lives and the, all the aspects of our personality can affect the pain perception, as well as where we grew up, our conditioning, uh, what society basically makes us believe about pain. All of that plays role. And as I have been studying, I, I just want to share with you, as I've been studying this, and I've been reading about a personal, personality traits of people who are more prone, who are more prone to be pain prone prototype or pain prone phenotype, conscientious, high achiever, um, kind of uh, hypervigilance, like um, having a, maybe some history of PTSD or some trauma. I'm like, well, I fall into all of these <laughs> categories. Basically, there is definitely a personality component to it. And that's why it's so hard to treat it because you cannot treat a biopsychosocial phenomenon with just a pill. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I love about it when we talk about the treatment in a second. But, you know, what you're describing in terms of the clinical criteria, the diagnostic criteria that 
that and the constellation of symptoms that make up the syndrome of fibromyalgia, you're describing a lot of the same, there's a lot of overlap with the other autoimmune conditions, right? Like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, osteoarthritis. And yes. the fact that this is not autoimmune or inflammatory, and it sounds more like a neurologic, like it would be something that a neurologist might specialize in. It falls into your lane because it has so much overlap of symptoms with, with the autoimmune and, and inflammatory conditions. So somebody might think these the, the symptoms all sound like rheumatoid arthritis, you know, or they might sound like I have lupus and it really does take a special and experienced clinician who's, who's a, a very good listener and a very, uh, it is an excellent diagnostician to be able to differentiate fibromyalgia or, you know, a kind of um, uh, overlapping syndrome of concomitant diagnoses like fibromyalgia plus RA or plus osteoarthritis. And uh, thank you for that. And I think you hit the nail on its head as far as why it falls onto rheumatology too, because we have a unique role. And by we, I mean, rheumatologists, we are trained to listen for, you know, features of inflammatory process and fibromyalgia, and we are trained to examine when I was a resident in internal medicine, I didn't know how to examine joints. We learned that in, you know, rheumatology fellowship. And then we, as we practice, we gain experience. But basically, that's what we are good at. We are good at distinguishing is this inflammatory process or not. Yeah. We are not always good at managing it. And that's where the role should be with all physicians, honestly. But our unique role is to help diagnose and then help explain it to the patient who can leave our office feeling reassured as opposed to oh, this is all in my head. I cannot tell you how many patients like their first, you know, um, sentence that came out of their mouth was, I'm here to confirm the diagnosis, but also to confirm I'm not like crazy that it's, you know, I was told it's in my head. So that's why rheumatologists will continue to see uh, fibromyalgia patients because we are very good at diagnosing it. And I should say very good at distinguishing when it could be an inflammatory process. And I have had several, maybe not several, but as, as far as I know, patients when I have missed, I saw they had only fibromyalgia and then they either already had or later developed psoriatic arthritis or sponsor arthropathy, and they can be hard to diagnose. Mm -hmm. And that's why experience matter being meticulous matter, because yeah. the, the distinction between fibromyalgia and spondylarthropathy can be subtle sometimes. So, I mean, yeah. You know, it, it's, I know that for most of the patients that I have who have fibromyalgia, I did not diagnose it. Maybe there was a clinical suspicion of it. Maybe I would do some screening blood work for autoimmune conditions. But for sure, if I needed a confirmation, I would say you need to see a rheumatologist to confirm our suspicion. And so many of those patients have been down such a long and difficult and confusing path to get to a diagnosis because they've been told it's all in your head. It's, you know, it's chronic pain. It's, you know, uh, it's something else, something, uh, you know, like maybe osteoarthritis or an injury, or maybe you're something in your lifestyle, you're sleeping on the wrong mattress, but it takes a long time for these patients to get to a diagnosis. It can be really frustrating. And the relief that they feel when they say, see, I told you there's something wrong. This is not normal. I know that I didn't feel right. And to have the diagnosis or to come to someone who understands and validates what they've suspected for so long, what they've been Googling and, you know, um, it must be really, um, it must be really rewarding for you to be able to not only give what they're feeling a name, but give them hope for potential treatment options. 
Yes, thank you. And that's that's been most of the, I would say, majority of patients, not all patients, because there is still so much stigma associated with the name fibromyalgia that they, it's hard to sometimes accept the concept, no matter how hard we try or how hard I try to explain the pain is real. The the, the concept is still the, the people with fibromyalgia don't have real pain. And that's, I'm trying to change that. But yes, the pain is 100% real. And as far as the treatment, so that's the that's the complex part. I have to tell you, Many times patients, I have had several examples when people started feeling better as soon as I just explained them what neuroplasticity is. Neuroplasticity meaning that brain can cause pain and brain can also improve pain. That is within our capability to rewire the pain pathways and that it happens as a result of a threat, some level of threat. And then when they understand personality contributes to it and any past trauma, there was uh, found to be association between past childhood adverse events uh, adverse child experience, ACE score, and increased level of PTSD and pain. And um, sometimes just knowing that there is a root cause for their pain that, you know, this just didn't spring out of nowhere, yeah. that already starts uh, helping. And then when they feel heard and that, that uh, I believe them, and when I explain to them that there is hope, that already starts helping even yeah. by, you know, on its own, by itself. And as far as specific treatment, so we still use medications. They are only helpful in about one out of three patients, and we use centrally acting medications. So we do use tricyclics like amitriptyline and uh, cyclobenzaprine. We use uh, SNRI, so serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors like Cymbalta. I'm not sure whether it's okay to mention the yeah, brand sure. names, but basically Cymbalta, milnosaprine, which is Favela, and I forget, I'm for, oh, um, I'm, for, I'm sorry, Effexor. Excellent. We use those and I, we use medications to, for, that are also used for neuropathy, such as uh, Neurontin and uh, Lyrica. And I go over these medications with the patient. Like I Usually they try it many before they... So we go over the history. I explain to them what can they expect. And sometimes we start a medication, sometimes we don't. What I focus on is the other part, which is the how we can rewire the brain pathways without medications or with like, what can be used in addition to. Yeah. And basically anything that that soothes down the nervous system and triggers the parasympathetic nervous system a response, the healing response, anything that can do that is what we try. And there is no one thing that is good for everyone. But I talked to them about one particular method based on mindfulness called somatic tracking. I have everyone read a book called uh, Way Out by Alan Gordon which I think is the best book on pain written. He, it was published a, a year ago and it describes the somatic tracking, which is basically bringing their attention to pain, to their pain on a purpose in the moment without judgment. And we, I, I do it with my patients in the office every time it takes a few minutes, you know, of the appointment time. And I have had some really, uh, remarkable experience and oh, I, while we are doing that bringing the attention to our pain in the moment without judgment we are also um, sending safety messages to the brain so to give you an example I had a patient with headache that I initially thought oh could it be GCA like temporal arthritis but I did a history it was not it seemed to have been tension headache and we did the exercise in the office she said she had a temple headache um, so she slowed our breathing we did some deep breathing and then I asked her to describe all the details about the pain, every single last detail. And then I said, and now you're gonna tell your brain, I'm safe, I'm strong, uh, I'm gonna overcome this. 
uh, I can handle anything, dear brain, what you send my way. I now understand that brain is causing some of the pain. And we were working on that. And by the time, by the end of the this exercise, she was pain free. And to her, it was like a like like a proof, right, that th she can do this, and she has yeah. been doing it on her own. Now yeah. I do I need to caution. It doesn't always work. Like in terms of when we expect certain outcome, and I have been a victim of that. Like oh, I, <laughs> I want my back pain to get better. Like when. when and it, like there cannot be any expectation. Like we have to let go of the expectation, be completely calm, yeah. and kind of have more curiosity than expectation. And if we practice that every day, enough every day, it will help. And that's what I'm trying to give my patients to tell them it's it's not a linear improvement. There will be bumps and dips, and but believing that this can help and believing in our own nervous system. So belief is the other part that I, you know, uh, teach my patients. I mean, it makes so much sense, especially when you're talking about the correlation with early childhood trauma, PTSD, um, activating the sympathetic nervous system, and therefore creating uh, a hypersensitivity to pain that a highly effective treatment, or I should say a, a, a potentially effective treatment would be to help regulate your nervous system, help tone down that fight or flight response, help bring up that rest and relax response as a means of kind of like almost like a tonic for your nervous system. So the kind of the etiology yes. and that, that, that treatment approach really makes a lot of sense. And I know that there's so many different lifestyle things. There's different mindfulness treatments, approaches, there's diet, there's exercise, there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of the things that we use in general you know, in, in, in other medical conditions, but can be particularly effective in my experience, taking care of fibromyalgia patients because they're in charge, they can control their symptoms. They can, you know, use trial and error to figure out what works and what doesn't. A lot of my patients are very holistic and they don't want to take medications. So we try all these different things, you know, and if they need it, they need it. There's no harm or shame in that. Um, but there is, Unlike some other medical conditions where there is uphill to treat it, the spectrum of treatment options for patients with fibromyalgia is really broad. And therefore, I think is, is, is you know, once you have that diagnosis, there's, there's a lot of hope. But I know that you're short on time, and I'm so sad because I think we could talk for days about this. Um, <laughs> I, I so appreciate that you're, in particular, paying attention and providing care, providing phenomenal care to the patients um, with fibromyalgia or working up the patients with suspected fibromyalgia because um, they need experience, they need expertise, and they need loving, compassionate care. And it's clear that you're passionate about you know, what you do and that you're helping so many people. I want you to tell my friends who are listening where they can find you if they want to learn more from you or become a patient. Are there any um, ways that we can access you either online or um, in, in person? Thank you for the question. I'm uh, My website is www at, uh, I'm sorry, winning at fibromyalgia.com, winning at fibromyalgia.com. I'm also on Facebook under... Um, my Martina Ziegenbein um, fibromyalgia coaching, but going to my website will connect. Uh, they can schedule an appointment with, with me by Zoom or send me a message. And if they are in Massachusetts or in Cape Cod and they want to be my patient, I work for Cape Cod Healthcare, and I don't have a phone number right now. But if they if they look up Cape Cod Healthcare, they can uh, send us a message and be referred. I'll include all of those links so that they can find you. And if you have the time, you let me know, and we can chat some more. I would love to speak again. This uh, 
such a fascinating topic and you're you're so brilliant and and wonderful for being here thank you so much thank you so much dr lex for having me i really appreciate that ciao thank you hey thanks for listening to my podcast family health with dr lex if you love the music like i do you can find more at therealmichaelvm.com forward slash music if you'd like to support the show please leave a review subscribe and share with your friends You can ask questions, suggest topics for future podcast interviews, and find more health and wellness information on my website, drlexlifestylemedicine.com. See you next time.